baptism because the sermons have already been already you know you've already seen the sermons uh, happen and you've heard uh, uh, how eloquently um, and beautifully portrayed and and spoken about uh, God's relationship to children is. Um, but uh, nonetheless, we have we have the text before us, and I'd, I'd like for us to spend some time on it. Um, kickball. Yeah, I got an amen on kickball. Bedtime stories. Not ones you tell, but ones you're told. Think about your childhood and things you love about it. Pretending to be asleep in the car so that they'll pick you up and take you to your bed. Don't you wish you could still pull that one off? Growing up knowing, not just for Halloween, but in real time and space, that you will be a superhero, a princess, or an astronaut. And that wearing a Band-Aid is cool, completely awesome. Some of you remember those things when you think of childhood, and others of you, and maybe some of the same of you, remember what it's like to be left alone in time and in space, and in of, of heart. And some of you know what it's like to be, to have people too close in time and space and of heart. Some of you remember what it's like to be, even as a six or five or four-year-old, to be so angry because you once again are seen and not heard. And some of you have forgotten, deliberately forgotten, what it was like. There's lots of places in Scripture that talk about Jesus as the center of Christianity and Christ. The Christ of Christianity is what this whole sermon series is about. And it may seem odd to talk about Jesus and the children uh, when we're talking about spiritual fatherhood or biological fatherhood or motherhood or being a parent because we have all these things about Jesus that we have really clear images of both as a servant and as a leader, as a friend, a, uh, uh, as a child even, as a laborer, a king, a community activist. But here is where we have, and a couple other places in Scripture, we have Jesus as a parent, if you will. Spiritual, and in some ways otherwise, too. It's funny, or weird, because Jesus is indignant as a parent. you got Mama Bear working right now in this passage. Mama Bear is mad. Only place in all of Scripture where this word indignant is used. But that was back then, right? So let's rewind. Some 2010 years ago. Actually, 2009 years, five months, and three days ago. Hilarion, which means something near funny, writes his wife Alice on June 17th, 1 B.C. He's probably pacing the dirt path in front of his tent. He's off in a different land, either at war or he is at, um, uh, he's working outside of bounds. Maybe there's a drought. He has to be in another land to do that. He's writing her a letter, knowing his wife is about to give birth, knowing his letter will not get there until after the baby is born. And he writes these words on June 17th. If it is a male or if it was a male child, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. 
Roman law gave the father, the paterfamilias, the absolute power over his family, including life and death. As early as the first century, we have indication where sons were put to death for disobedience and disobedience alone. But it's not just those crazy Romans. It's, it's, the Hellenists, it's not just the Hellenists in that culture or that influence of that culture. Remember Jesus' birth story. What happens? We're about to go into Advent. What happens? Infanticide by Herod the Tetrarch. Every child under two years old destroyed so that Herod could keep his status and his power so the heir apparent Jesus would not have that power and status and strength and political might. A royal decree to destroy all the children so he could keep himself and his family protected. The Gnostics, the same people, the same uh, different people in the same day, had very similar things. It was actually evil to be married, and even further evil to procreate, to have uh, have children. The propagation of life was evil because, see, we're stuck in these bodies, you, you see, and we need to be redeemed out of them. And having children obstruct your ways to salvation. They serve only to divert a man from his eventual goal. And back in these days, abortion and infanticide were basically the same thing. It was uh, neither here nor there. You know, we wouldn't have these kind of uh, linear distinctions because you would just put your baby out to low t- at low tide if you didn't want to keep them or her, typically her. You would cast it out at night in the forest. Megiddo is a town where we get from Armageddon. The Megiddo has thousands and thousands of sacrificed children in its valleys. Sardinia, Babylonia, the Syrians offering sacrifices to their gods. Egypt even, who's actually one of the ones that has the least amount of it. Still, for about 200 years, archaeology shows us. Carthage, which is the worst Phoenicians, Canaanites, Moabites offered their firstborn as a sacrifice. Some of them did it on the first, on every tenth child in the places of famine because that's what you did. And here's the troubling thing. That's not all the evidence of the ancient Near East and children. There are pots with parents playing with their children or being tutored in math. And sciences are playing the lyre. There's pottery, Greek, uh, 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 Greek pottery that has uh, boys learning how to ride horses and box and be part of the games. We have terracotta statues of showing images of children at play, girls and boys. Uh, we have actual toys. Pet gooses. Geese, I guess is what it would be. Ancient dolls with arm, movable arms and legs, a rattle. Yo-yos, hoops, seesaws, push carts, swings, and dice that look a lot like you can get at Toys R Us. And it wasn't just that those that, that people were cast out. There's this great letter from 2000 BC in New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art that has a letter written by a girl, which means she's both educated to read and to write, and she's writing her mother back, who obviously is also educated to read and to write. And she says this, And only a 17-year-old modern girl could say, Dear mother, I am all right. Stop worrying about me. Here's the problem with the children thing, with the difficulty of all these things, is that 
It's both and. It's messed up and beautiful and terrorizing. It's kickball and fear. But we wouldn't be like that. Those are those ancient people. We've matured, evolved even as a human race. We never get rid of our children for the sake of convenience. There are no stories of children dying at their parents' hands because they want to be free to pursue their other relationships. There's nothing. If I sound a little indignant, it's because what Pastor Howard's taught me how to do more than anybody else, it's all Pastor Howard's fault if I sound indignant. No. Uh, <laughs> if he's taught me how to do anything in preaching, it's to completely throw yourself into the story and then wake your, make your way back to Christ Central 2009. So to go all the way back and you can't get away from the fact that Jesus is ticked off. Now, why is he mad? We'll talk about it. He's mad because of the way we treat our children. <laughs> I mean, it's simple. And they were bringing children to him. I think our, your translation says people were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to, the, to, said to them, the disciples, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Just to give you a little understanding of what's going on here, they were bringing, bringing, it's assuming it's their parents or some type of caretakers. The children are likely little children, uh, uh, infants and up to probably toddler age, maybe a little, maybe a full array of kids as well, but, but, but certainly little enough to hold into his arms. He was gonna touch them, or they were asking him to touch them. And rabbinic tradition was that rabbis didn't touch children. One rabbi wrote, chattering with children destroys a man. Oh, if I weren't supposed to be indignant, there's all sorts of jokes there. So the disciples weren't being culturally insensitive. They were holding the cultural status quo. They're not just super rude. No one would have thought anything of what they were doing. The disciples rebuked them. They said, kids, get out of here. Scram. It's like a Santa Claus line without a line. Just coming and coming. So they're protecting Jesus. He didn't have time for this. Your minuscule little children problems. This is not for you. Get out of here. Scram. You're not important. This guy's got to save the universe. He's got big things, big plans. The disciples use the same word with rebuke as Jesus uses with the winds and the waves. When he calms the water down. Uses the same words that Jesus uses to Peter rebuke when he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what I got to do. These are strong rebukes. We wouldn't do that, would we? Have abuse and neglect. Almost five children die every day as a result of child abuse. Three quarters of them under the age of four. A report of child abuse is made every 10 seconds. 90% of child abuse victims know their perpetrator. Child abuse occurs at every socioeconomic level, ethnic and cultural line, within all regions and at all levels of education. 31% of women in prison in the United States were abused as children. 60% of people in drug rehabilitation centers were being a report being abused or neglected as a child. 30% of abused and neglected children were later abused their own children, continuing the horrible cycle of abuse. The estimated annual cost of re- resulting from child abuse and neglect in the United States for 2007 is $104 billion. 
We wouldn't be like that, would we? We're not that insensitive to those things. We know that. We know better, right? (laughs) What we do is what they did. Is we have some image of this is not mine. This is not my responsibility. This child is not something I have to take care of. It infringes too much upon me or I'll infringe too much upon it or whatever it is. We say not mine. We, st- we stop from bringing children to Jesus or we rebuke the, rebuke the ones that are coming to Jesus by their nature and by, the, who they, by, by who they're called to be. And we hinder them and we do not let them come. Do you know 90% of our, of Down syndrome children are aborted? Why? The re- given reason? Because they don't want them to have a miserable life. The, the parents don't want the children to have a miserable life. And you know this is true because you've seen Down syndrome people. They look miserable all the time. <laughs> Maybe it's not them. Maybe it's our stuff that's getting in the way. Our conveniences. Maybe we're a lot more like Herod the Tetrarch than we think. So we make it not hit, not ours, but we also make it not his. There's the flip side of all our stuff we do with kids where we are so ridiculously per- protective of them that we still keep them from coming to Jesus. We so keep them from um, uh, sensing that they are uh, a in need of Jesus, or that the world is broken, or anything like that. That we that we are, we hinder them from coming to Jesus on the front end, way before we get there. It's flipped. The disciples were keeping, uh, were protecting Jesus from the kids. We're protecting our kids from Jesus, because Jesus will mess with your kids, and He will mess with you. And we keep ourselves busy with their development. And we keep ourselves busy with our own development. But the truth is, the heroes in this story, besides Jesus, we'll get to that, are the unnamed they that are bringing, the, the people that are bringing their kids to Jesus in the first place. We're so busy giving our kids to the American dream, or a good job, or a fine education or if we are more religious, we are so good, want them to be moral, or uh, or, or oh, just obey, or uh, obey, uh, or assent to a bunch of truths that we still keep them from Jesus. There's lots of ways to keep them from Jesus. You can say it's not mine. You can say it's not his. He's ours. Our job is to let them come. It saddens me every time and still doesn't sadden me enough that we have to call for nursery workers. Do not hinder our children. Let them come and let them come not to become latchkey Christians. Do not hinder them by not working nursery. Do not hinder them by showing up and winging it for Sunday school. Do not hinder them by doing the bare minimum to see your kids or other kids grow up in the Lord. Do not hinder them by always being late to show them that they're no priority. Let them come to Jesus because Jesus wants them. Jesus wants them. Why? This is bizarre to me and beautiful. Why? Well, he gives it. Glad I asked that. 
Why? It's because the kingdom is theirs. Look at that. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. For such belongs the kingdom of God. For these kinds of little infant type people that I can hold in my hands belongs to the kingdom of God. The kingdom belongs to them. Let the little children come to me, for the kingdom belongs to them. Not only are they this kind of metaphor that we'll get to later, but he's saying those real kids really belong in my real kingdom. Do you know what Jesus did with kids? Now think about the, 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 the ancient Near Eastern setting that I put in for this and how kids could be dismissed and loved on, but and dismissed pretty significantly and how you um, have the passage about the, um, uh, about the rabbi saying, don't be with chattering kids and all that stuff. Jesus constantly uses parent-child and child relationships in his teaching and his actual miracles. And if you take a theological look at it, his miracles are acts of the kingdom in breaking into the world. Of course, he's healing somebody, and that's beautiful and wonderful too, but it's also an in-breaking of his kingdom, the way it's supposed to be, the way he intends the rule, to, the rule of God to happen, this loving, merciful, healing kind of institution, this healing inst- reality. How many kids does Jesus heal? Jairus' daughter, a demonized guy on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, uh, the uh, the nobleman's son in John 4. Uh, he talks about the gentle love of father who cuddles in Luke 11. In John 16, he celebrates the delight of a mother giving birth. He is so radically uh, departing from a rabbinic tradition. He's so radically departing from it and saying, this kingdom belongs to them. That's why we baptize Repent and be baptized, as we talked about earlier. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, and your children, and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. God calls children. He does. We don't baptize kids because we think they're awesome, though we do think they're awesome. We baptize kids because the kingdom is theirs. And the most specific manifestation of the kingdom is the church itself. There's a lot of things that had bad that happened from 320 to 370 with respect to Christianity. I know you know all this, of course. But uh, 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 what, what happens is, is Constantine becomes a Christian, sees that white cross, and everything changes. It becomes the, whole, the, the, Catholic, uh, the Roman Empire. It comes all those things. And a lot of times it gets institutionalized, and there's some really bad things. Let me tell you one really good thing that happened from 320 to 370, is that Emperor Constantine, now that he'd become a Christian, said, Oh, I'm not thinking about kids right. And he did two things. He made two laws. And eventually the third law was to outlaw of uh, the paterfamilias being able to kill their kids. It's a good, good move. Um, he enacted two laws. One was directed against child murder, which, uh, the, and these are still in code, you can read them. The first is to remove the temptation of killing your children by providing funds out of the imperial treasury for parents overburdened with kids. So if you're overburdened, you get some money, at his money, in their mind. And if anybody picked one of the cast-off kids off the streets... They got full rights and support for doing that very thing. Kind of immediate adoption, if you will. You know what Christians were known for most? That very act. There's all sorts of letters about these Christian people who would take the kids off the dung heaps and out of the low tides to care for them. Bizarre things like letters written describing the Christians. They do have children and they do not cast them off. 
Something about being in relationship with Jesus is going, oh, okay, there's something else going on here. So the kingdom is theirs, but of course that means that the kingdom, the king of the kingdom is theirs, right? If the kingdom is theirs, the king of the kingdom is theirs, and maybe it's better to put, they're the kings. Let the children come to me, Jesus says. And then later he takes them up in his arms and blesses them, laying his hands upon them. Jesus wants them. He wants them close to him. He is a snuggling God. He takes them in his arms and blesses them demonstratively. Again, we don't presume our children are great. We presume that Jesus loves our children. Irenaeus, who's a first century, second century writer, writes this. He came to save all by means of himself. All, I say, who through him are born again unto God. Infants and children and boys and youths and old men. He therefore passed through every age. And what he's saying here, Irenaeus is saying here, is that Jesus was all those things so he could redeem all those things. Even an infant. And Spurgeon, who's a great Baptist preacher who wouldn't want us to baptize our infants here, but, you know, he's allowed to be wrong even though he's a great preacher. Uh, uh, He says this, I will say broadly that I have more confidence in the spiritual life of children that I've received into this church than I have the spiritual condition of adults. I'll go further to say that I've usually found clearer knowledge of the gospel and a warmer love to Christ in child converts than in adult converts. What he's saying is kids get the gospel better, y'all. They get it. George MacDonald, the great Catholic uh, theologian, writer of a bunch of different things, not such a great social critic, but a lot of other good things, says this, once uh, said once that he doubted a man's Christianity if children were never found playing around his door. Okay, guys, here's what Jesus is doing. He's being the parent for us. He is, he's taking on that role. But he's not just giving us parental tips. That's not what only is going on here. He's not just saying prioritize, prioritize the kids, prioritize the kids, prioritize the kids. Jesus, in a good parental way, is basically saying, and one more thing. And you get it with, in my translation from the Greek, truly I say to you. You know when Jesus says, truly I say to you, you should probably, you know, hey, wait, I should probably listen here. Verily, verily, this is Pastor Howard's favorite, you know, when he puts his fingers up. Verily, verily, I say unto you. <laughs> truly I say unto you, to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit. Unless we become bundles of helplessness, helplessness and reliance... We don't enter the kingdom of God. We are not supposed to be like John Calvin or Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or Martin Luther or Martin Luther King Jr. Sophisticated as all those are, but utterly needy children. It's really important to get the um, connection here. We're supposed to be like kids. Does that mean we're supposed to have crumbs on our mouth? Does that mean we're supposed to spill a lot of stuff? Does that mean we're supposed to uh, like kickball and band-aids? What does it mean to come as a kid? One of the big misapplications of this text is to start talking about innocence. As if kids were innocent. 
Most of you who are adults or parents would go, this is some silliness. But I have personally done a seven-year study now. An elongated psychological assessment of two different children. (laughs) Call them Springer and Carver. From two genders, from both genders. And my findings show conclusively that there are at least two children who are not innocent and pure. And I've talked to other parents, and we come with similar results. My own mother says she's been doing this for 42 and 37 years, respectively. And she's found the same thing. Kids aren't innocent, and that's not the connection point. And if we have this idolatrous view of what it means to be a child and how great they are, yeah, certainly the ancient Near Eastern wouldn't have thought that. It would not have been on the top ten list of things that Jesus thought that they thought Jesus was talking about. If you're an ancient Near Eastern, you're like, um, uh, what? But it's not even the subjective feeling of it either. Like, they're just so trustworthy. I mean, they're so trustful, sorry. Not trustworthy. We all know that's not true. (laughs) So trustful. They just look into your eyes and just believe you. It took seven years to get him to jump off the diving board. He was not looking at me with trust but utter terror. He's not trustful of me. And Springer just jumped off and didn't care whether I was going to catch her or not. She should have been trust, more trustful of me. It's not about our receptivity as kids or as, our simplicity as children or our wonderment of the world. Those are all true, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about one thing. If parents don't take care of their kids, they die. They are objectively, utterly helpless. Especially the little ones that had to be brought to him They are objectively helpless. Unless you enter the kingdom of God like a helpless one, you have no part in it. It's not subjective. It's not innocent. It's need. You need them. That's what it is. It's not any much more complicated than that. No control, no claims or status. The reason their arms are open is because they're going to die if they have them closed. The reason they're crying is because they need to eat and you must feed them. And change them. So what he's doing here is saying, you're them. Isn't he? You're them. It's a great set of teachings that I recommend to you all by World Harvest Mission called Sonship or Gospel Transformation. It's got lots of different things. And what it does is it gets right on this thing and just it just nails it home one after another after another. There are some issues with it. Yes, 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 yes. But I want to give you this fundamental reality is that you're them and that's really great freaking news because that means you're His. That means we're sons and daughters of the living God. That means that we are not orphans. And we have not been rebuked because Jesus himself has been indignant that we are able to come to him and has made way for that. 
And He has made this way. We no longer have to feel alone. Like we have no intimacy with others because we have a God who really does care for us. We don't have to feel anxious over needs and relationships and money and health because we have a Father who provides for us. We don't have to live on a success-failure basis and work our tails off all the time with no hope and trying to earn our way before God's favor when we know we have been adopted and called His very children and that He will never leave us or forsake us. That doesn't mean we don't work hard. That means you can work hard in light of the fact that you're His. I believe that this is one of the fundamental experiential things that we need for our church and we need for as as Christians is to understand our utter dependency and not just know that we're sons and daughters of God, but that He is our loving Father and that we experience that. Because if we experience that, there's a whole lot of stuff we can deal with. There's a whole lot of stuff we can handle. There's a whole lot of stuff that we can believe. We need another vision of God's fatherhood. We spend our time as if we were orphans and unloved. Let me read you something from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 12. It was written 400 years ago, and it'll sound like it. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have His name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied and protected and provided for and chastened by Him as by a Father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's pretty good for a bunch of Brits from 400 years ago, isn't it? Enabled to cry, Abba, Father, if we come to Him helpless, empty-handed, knowing that we have nothing. Y'all, back to kickball, or abandonment, or abuse, or neglect. We all need a redeemed picture of our Father and Jesus gives us one here and becomes one here. We were doing a, um, uh, uh, a covenant seminary where Pastor Howard and I went to school. They used to do these talks at the Borders bookstore or something like that. And one of the, uh, uh, or at a coffee shop or wherever it was, and there was a large group of people, about 30 people, that's a large group for a Borders talk, um, came, uh, came and one of our professors, Dr. Mike Williams, was, uh, was, um, was talking about God's fatherhood. And uh, there's all sorts of people there. It's not people who are claimed to be Christians or anything like that. And one of them, uh, one of the uh, students at the Q&A time, he gave about 20 minutes talking at the Q&A time, put up her hand and very passionately asked a very dear and wonderful question. Why do you keep talking about God as a father? Do you know what my father did to me? Can we find another category to talk about God in? And this is a theologian, so you know you would expect him to give a good theologically distanced answer. 
This is also a guy who was in like the Green Berets or something crazy like that too. And a Harvard grad. I know it's ridiculous. And he stopped and he pulled to the side and he said, My dad tried to burn me in the bed I was sleeping in. We all need a redeemed father. And we have one because of Christ Jesus. This isn't a passage about how to make you the best father or mother. This is a passage about having you lean in to Christ Jesus, our brother and father, our parent, to know that we do and are loved by this amazing God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. (laughs) We need you to be convinced that we are children that drink pure milk. We need you to be convinced that we are loved and not orphans any longer. That you have secured our days. That you have called us by your name. That you will never cast us off. And that you say, come to me as a child. And we can come even nervous, but come objectively of those who need you for all that we have and all that we are. Lord Jesus, sanctify us into little kids. Grow us up into infants. We ask in your name. Amen. When our closing song speaks of the goodness of our Lord.